Well, this morning we're continuing our look at the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 2 today, and we're going to be looking at a short section in, uh, in chapter 2, the first five verses in particular. And what we're going to be talking about today as we look at this is the fact that in Jesus you will find what you're looking for. And that's a key statement. I don't want us to just overlook that statement for, for uh, any length of time. That's a, a key concept that I think that we as believers in Jesus Christ have the opportunity to embrace, the fact that in Jesus, we really do find what our hearts are longing for and looking for. And you have the Apostle Paul explaining and demonstrating that in these verses that we're about to read together. Colossians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the privilege that it is to be able to look at it together today. And we're grateful for the fact that that you make it very clear to us that in your Son, Jesus Christ, we find what we're looking for. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be reminded of that as we look at this portion of Scripture together today. We're thankful for the words that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write down and, uh, and the Colossian church to receive. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at these things, that, that we would likewise receive these truths as your Spirit speaks to our minds and speaks to our hearts and helps us to understand the things that we're looking at together. We commit this time to you now, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So when, when I graduated from high school, I realize some of you are, are still in high school. Some of you probably just finished up high school not too long ago. But when I graduated high school, I have to admit, I was so grateful to be finished. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying that I didn't have friends or that I didn't have a good experience because I had plenty of friends. My overall experience with schooling was fine, but I was honestly very ready to be done. And I remember at that season of my life, every time one chapter was starting to finish up, I was very eager to start the next chapter. I did not want to spend my days in school culture any longer, at least in high school culture any longer. I wanted to move on to the next thing. I was very excited about college at that point. And so I moved on. And I remember... The night of graduation, standing outside our school auditorium, and I was standing there with my parents and with my siblings, and uh, the ceremony had ended. I'm standing there together with my family, and I remember uh, my mother in particular asking me, she said, do you, it, the ceremony's done, do you want to just interact with people for a little bit and hang out? You know, we could just wait here while you're saying your goodbyes to people and talking to people, and I was like, no, I'm good. She's like, what do you mean you're good? Like, this is it. Like, high school's done. I was like, yes, I'm thrilled. Um, can we go to friendlies? <laughs> and they were like, that's all you want to do? I was like, yeah, after, and that was what our family used to do after every big school event, we would drive down the, the highway to friendlies and we would get some food. I was like, no, I'm just ready to eat. Let's go to friendlies. They're like, you understand this is like a big moment in your life. It's like, I've already processed that. Let's go. And uh, so we went and uh, that was it. <laughs> that's how high school ended. It was uh, maybe a little anticlimactic in some respects, but I have to say the people that I met during that season of life 
made a big impression on me and still make a big impression on me to this day. And I still remain in contact with a, a large percentage of the people that I graduated from high school with. Uh, I, I would say my, my classmates from high school are people I'm very grateful to know. And I'd also say this, and I know that some of them listen to our live stream and, and uh, participate in, uh, in the content that we put online. These are people that I, I've always been grateful to know and in ways that I don't think that they would realize unless I probably outlined it for them. They were teaching me significant things about uh, just human nature and human interaction by being able to observe my friends in that context growing up. And I still remember, and I was thinking about this a lot in relation to the scripture that we're looking at today. I was thinking about this this week because today we're talking about the fact that in Jesus, you will find what you're looking for. And people demonstrate that there's a longing in their heart in a variety of ways. And I still remember two people from that high school era that demonstrated a very similar pattern in how they interacted with people. They were always with someone. And by, the, by with someone, I mean they were always dating someone. One was a guy, one was a girl. They never ended up together, which is, seems like a shame, doesn't it? Because they always seemed like they had to be with someone. But it seemed to me, I remember, it was like... You know, do you ever go through a stretch in high school or, or uh, that season where you're like, man, I just, I'd love to be dating somebody, right? And then there are people like this that seem like they're, they're done dating somebody, and in four minutes, they're now dating somebody new. And you're like, how do you do this, right? Do you remember seeing that and just thinking, like, how is this possible? Like, do you have a waiting list? Do you have a waiting list? And, and when one relationship ends, are you like, all right, uh, looks like we've made it to the Ds. We are in the Ds. And they always seem to be dating somebody. And uh, they never seem to go a day without dating somebody. And as soon as they'd break up with one person, they'd immediately begin dating somebody new. And now decades later, I've done a lot of relationship counseling, a lot of marriage counseling. I actually see that pattern in the lives of a lot of adults as well. That's not just a, a teenage pattern. That's an adult pattern as well. So why is that a decision that many people make? Why do some people think that that's... And that's just one example of how that kind of decision or that kind of longing plays out in a person's life. There's other ways it plays out as well. I think it just illustrates, though, the fact that we all have a deep longing inside our souls. We long to be loved. Everyone in this room, everyone listening to the live stream, everyone listening to the podcast, we all long to be loved. We long for unconditional acceptance. And I think that we can instinctively tell that something is missing deep within us, and so we try to either find someone or something to fill that void. So some people go to dating relationships as their way to fill that void. By the way, that doesn't work. Some people go to degrees to fill that void, or titles, or power, or knowledge, or possessions, or money. All sorts of things are utilized by many people over the course of human history and right now at present to try and fill the void that we know instinctively is within us. But every one of those options that I just listed will leave us disappointed. We will only find what our hearts are longing for, the deepest form of love, acceptance, contentment, and peace through Jesus Christ. Anything else we're attempting to satisfy that longing with will come up short. It will eventually disappoint us. And that was something that the Apostle Paul was attempting to help the Colossians to understand in this passage. Because in their culture, 
There were people who were teaching that the human heart could only be satisfied by obtaining some form of secret knowledge. And so you're going to see Paul addressing that, not just in the scripture we're looking at today, but in coming verses and coming chapters as we continue working our way through the book of Colossians. And so here Paul makes it clear that true wisdom and true knowledge are found through Jesus, and that we as believers in Christ should be pursuing Christ as one body. So look at some of the things that the Apostle Paul makes clear in this portion of Scripture to help us understand how this all works and what this looks like. First of all, he tells us in the first couple verses that we're knit together in love. So let me reread those verses and explain a little bit about what he's talking about here. He says in verse 1 and then verse 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, and I love how he says this here, he says, being knit together in love. That's how he's describing the church, being knit together in love. To reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So as this passage of Scripture begins, you have the Apostle Paul, he's stressing the ways in which he has been struggling for the believers in two places. He talks about, and really more than just two places, but he specifies two. He talks about the believers in Colossae, and he talks about the believers in a city called Laodicea. Now, both of those churches, it's kind of unique in the sense that these are letters that Paul is writing, or this is a letter that he's writing that he wants to be uh, communicated to both of these people, but he did not plant those churches. Many of the letters that Paul wrote were letters to churches that he planted or people that he directly discipled and trained. But in this context, he didn't plant these churches. If you remember, Epaphras, who had heard him preach at Ephesus, went back to Colossae and planted the church at Colossae. And, uh, and still, you have, you have Paul here, even though he did not plant these churches, he tells them, I'm still struggling for you. And what he means by that is that he's struggling for them in prayer daily. He's praying for them continually. He tells us here he's praying for their encouragement. He's also praying for their maturity. He's praying for their growth. He also prays for their unity. This is a a nice list of things. You know, when you try and think about things you could be praying for for other people, I think Paul gives us a great example of those things through multiple portions of Scripture where he just talks about the things that he's praying about for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And I love when Paul's talking about unity here, and he's talking about the unity that he wants to see present at the church in Colossae. I like the way he describes unity in this passage, and I highlighted it just a moment ago. But he described united believers as being knit together in love. So just think about that for a second, being knit together in love in love. What does that look like? What does that mean? Does anyone here, by the way, knit? Does anyone knit or crochet? So sometimes I refer to it as knitting. All right, there's a few of you. And uh, my oldest daughter recently corrected me, and she said, you know, there's a difference between knitting and crocheting. Some of you know that difference. I don't. (laughs) I know that both involve yarn and both involve needles and both produce beautiful items. But I am not, I am, I, and I know that it takes pieces of fabric and kind of interweaves it together. And I've noticed my, my daughter in particular, uh, recently she taught herself how to crochet. And so she's been crocheting a whole bunch of things. Recently she, she made this beautiful sweater. And it was interesting because she started it off with this circle that then she added other things to. And I'm looking at it and I thought she has a vision for this in her mind. And somehow she knows how, the, how it turns from that circle into a sweater. And 
very much did. It turned into a cardigan that she wears around the house. And then all of a sudden, she started making hats, and then she's making gloves. And at the end of each day, she's started from scratch, and, and she's made something, and she'll hand it to me, and I'll be like, hey, you want me to put it on? You know, she made a hat recently. I was like, hey, let me put it on, and I'll take a picture. It wasn't designed for someone like me. But anyway, I look at it, and I think it's impressive, because she could do something. I don't know how to do it, and I watch her do it, and I think, all right, these things actually look good. They don't look like you're, you're new at this. They actually look good. And she intertwines that yarn together and just makes some really nice stuff. And I think Paul had that kind of mindset when he was thinking about the church, and he describes it here. It's a beautiful thing when the church remains connected. It's a beautiful thing when the church remains intertwined in love. But there are things that come our way that can easily threaten our sense of unity. And Paul was going to segue to that here in this passage. He's talking about the baseline of what he hopes to see in this church. But he also is going to illustrate what can threaten it. And it's useful for us in our context here, because the very, human nature is human nature. The very things that could threaten the, the unity of the church at Colossae are the things that could threaten the unity of present-day church or our local church. These, human nature is human nature. So there are things that could come our way that easily threaten that sense of unity. But Paul was rejoicing that at present he was seeing unity among the Colossian believers. But one of the things that threatens unity, and you're going to see Paul address this here and elsewhere in this book, but a big threat can be false doctrine. So just think about that for a second. False doctrine. False doctrine, it threatens both unity and maturity. Uh, it also leads well-meaning people away into all kinds of error and all kinds of uh, issues that really don't need to be present in their life. But false doctrine, basically what you believe results in behavior in your day-to-day -day life. And it's a church, or it's an issue that the church needs to be aware of. And I find it interesting that in the midst of this discussion, you have Paul mentioning the church at Laodicea. So you caught that. He's not just addressing this to the believers at, Col at Colossae. He also brings up the church at Laodicea. Now, I don't expect that, that most of us are highly familiar with the map of where these cities were. And in fact, I, I, I took an opportunity to look a little bit about where these things are. Laodicea is only just a few miles away from Colossae. So you could walk there. You could actually walk between the two cities, just a few miles away. And it's actually believed that Epaphras, the same guy that, that had um, planted the church at Colossae, that he very well may have planted the church at Laodicea, or maybe some of the believers from the church at Colossae just traveled a few miles away to Laodicea and collectively started sharing the gospel there. We're not exactly sure how that, how that church got planted, but regardless... It did. And it was actually a church with some prominence during that era. But I'm, I'm curious if there's anything you know about the church at Laodicea. Don't you think every church kind of has a reputation? You know, when you think about, if you didn't grow up in this area, if you're not, uh, you know, from here, you, you probably grew up, maybe you grew up going to a church. I grew up going to a church up in northeast Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, our church had a reputation. Thankfully, it was a good reputation. I think different churches become known for different things. And the church at Laodicea, it actually has a reputation that has lasted throughout the centuries. And I'm curious, you don't have to call it out loud, but just try and think it in your mind. It's like a, a bonus trivia moment during our worship service. What was the church at Laodicea known for? 
It has a reputation that it still holds on to to this very day. The church was known for being lukewarm in its faith. It was known for being a lukewarm church. And what do you suppose might have contributed to that? The church is being lukewarm. And by the way, when, when I'm using the phrase lukewarm, I'm using it in the way that it's described in Scripture. And I'm going to read to you a portion of Scripture from Revelation chapter 3, some words of Christ as he was describing the church at Laodicea. But basically what he was saying was, pick a side. Pick a side. I would rather you be hot or cold, but instead you're just trying to wander in the middle, never picking a side, never committing your heart, never committing your life to what deeply matters. And I look at that and I think for you and I living in the generation that you and I live in, eventually, if we're trying to like just kind of walk on an edge but never pick a side, I think the day's coming where you're going to have to pick a side. It may be here. I actually think the Lord wants you and I, as believers in Him, to be people who pick a side. And by pick a side, I mean be fully committed to Him, be fully committed to the teaching of His Word, be fully committing to applying the gospel to your life and living it out in relation to every believer you come in contact with and every unbeliever you come in contact with. Don't try and live your life with one foot in the world, valuing the things of this world, adopting worldly practices into your life. And then at the other, side, the other side saying, all right, well, today will be a day that I follow Jesus. But tomorrow, if my heart so it feels inclined, I will go in the direction of the things of this world. And we go back and forth and back and forth. And I think what Christ wants us to do is pick a side. And the Laodiceans were a group of people. It seemed very interested in what was going on culturally. It's a prosperous area. It's an area with a lot of things that tempted them. It's an area with all sorts of false doctrines. And I think they were kind of buying into that garbage. And as a result, they have a reputation that has gone on for centuries and centuries because of what's referenced about them in the book of Revelation, where the Lord's like, I'm tired of you being lukewarm. And this is what he says. Let me just show you what he says. And here, by the way, these are things being said after Paul had, had cautioned the church at Laodicea about these things through this writing. But in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says this of the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works, meaning I know what you're up to. I know how you live your life. I know how you conduct yourself in this world. I know. I'm watching the whole time. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. You know, can you, can you imagine this? Like, like spoken with love and the passion where you look at somebody that's messing up their life and you're saying, can you just make a decision? Can you just go in a direction? Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. When I see Jesus face to face, I want him to look at me and say, well done. I don't want him to look at my life and say, oh, that, was, that is the, the type of life that I just would spit out of my mouth. It's kind of like when you're, when you're drinking coffee. Hot coffee is delicious. Iced coffee, also delicious. Who goes into Dunkin' Donuts and says, give me something in between those two? Do you have something that's been sitting around for a while? Maybe something that somebody ordered and they never came and picked up? Can I have that? Give me the one that's got all the ice cubes melted in it, so there's like a layer of clear water on top of it. Give me that one. That's the good stuff, right? We wouldn't want that. 
And so you have Christ looking at us, and he's looking at the church. He's specifically speaking of the church at Laodicea there, and he's saying, hot or cold, pick, hot or cold. Can I just challenge us as believers in Christ? Pick. Not tomorrow, pick today. Either be all the way for Christ or just reject him completely. Pick. I actually think that you can, I think that he can do more with a heart that rejects him completely than someone that tries to walk that line. Pick a side and then live it all the way. Don't just be halfway. Obviously, I want you to pick Christ, but I don't want you to be lukewarm. And here you have the church at Laodicea where Christ is saying, what is he saying? You're trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in heaven, and I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Are we living together as brothers and sisters who are knitted together in love and faithful to to Christ, faithful to the truth of his word? This is the type of thing that Paul wanted the early church to demonstrate. He's trying to challenge the church at Colossae and the church at Laodicea to embrace us. You see Christ emphasize this in Revelation chapter 3. This is the type of stuff that you and I are called to notice and learn from the example of believers that came before us. Something else that this portion of Scripture brings out, we see this in verse 3 of Colossians 2. We look to Jesus as our source of wisdom and knowledge. As growing believers, we look to Jesus as our source of wisdom and knowledge. Look at verse 3 of Colossians 2. It's just a partial sentence, but it says, in whom, so it's referencing Christ, it says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let me read it again. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When I was growing up, there was a member of my extended family who would steal from us regularly. He would do it all the time. And I suspected that it was him that was doing the stealing, but I wasn't 100% sure for a while. I just kind of had a suspicion. And to be honest, I think one of the things that I was struggling with and really coming to terms with that in my mind was the fact that I liked him so much that I didn't want to believe that. You ever experience that where you just like somebody so much you're like, I just don't want to believe that about you. But then I caught him directly. And so I confronted him about that. And then from that point on, I did my best to try to prevent him from stealing the things that belonged to me. And so what I would do is I would hide what was most valuable. The things that were most valuable to me, I would just hide. And in fact, any cash that I earned... I hid in a very specific place, a a place that I thought he was least likely to look. I hid it in books. (laughs) I had books, and uh, I've always been a reader, and so I used to, there was a certain page that I would hide my money in. So if I couldn't remember what book, I I knew the number. I would always pick a certain page, and then I'd hide my money in books. So when I die, before you give away my library, look through the books, because I might have forgot some that's in there somewhere. Just at least check. And first one that finds it gets it, all right? Do you consider yourself a reader? Are you a reader? I love reading. I do it daily. My family jokes about the fact that I'll have sometimes seven or eight books going at a time, and that's an, the honest truth. I have a stack of books that I keep next to the, my chair in our family room. Um, and I will admit that it's easier for me to make a daily habit of reading when I'm the one choosing the books. Uh, frequently when I speak to young people, I, I hear a similar thing. Many tell me that they've actually developed a distaste for reading because they primarily associate it with the compulsory reading of dry textbooks. And because that's what reading is to them, they've lost their love for reading. And I think to myself, there's so many things in my head and so many things that have saved me so much time and so much pain that I've been able to learn 
through reading. I have a few quotes that I really like about reading. Could I share them with you? Like, well, we gave you the mic. You might as well do something with it, right? Three quotes. I want to share these quotes. I love each of these quotes, but the third one's my favorite. They work, they work up. Ascending order, right? First quote. See if you recognize who it's from. It goes like this. Fill your house with stacks of books in all the crannies and all the nooks. It's very profound. Dr. Seuss. That'd be Dr. Seuss. Fill your house with stacks of books in all the crannies and all the nooks. I have taken that counsel. All right, here's another one. See if you can figure out who this might be from. He said, I find television very educating. Every time someone turns on the set, I go into the other room and read a book. Groucho Marx said that. Groucho Marx, isn't that funny? But this is the one, this one's probably my favorite. And I actually hope, even if you forget the other two, I hope you remember this one. Remember this one, however it sits in your mind. Let, just bring it back to your mind somehow. It's from Charlie Tremendous Jones. And he said this, You are the same today as you'll be in five years, except for two things the people you meet, and the books you read. Again, you are the same today as you'll be in five years, except for two things, the people you meet and the books you read. Now, I'm grateful, extremely grateful, that we have unlimited access to the Word of God. I'm extremely grateful for that. I'm grateful that we could pick it up. I'm grateful that we can read it. I'm grateful that we can let it point our hearts to Jesus Christ because that's what the Word of God is attempting to do. Scripture tells us that the Word of God is living, that the Word of God is active. Scripture also tells us that the Spirit of God will use it to reveal things to our hearts and to reveal things to our minds that we would never have developed a natural understanding of. We would not have figured some of these things out naturally. So your faith and your wisdom will grow if you become more and more acquainted with the Word of God that points you to Jesus, who is the source of eternal knowledge and eternal wisdom. And that's what Paul was trying to help these young believers to grasp. He wanted them to understand these things. Looking to Jesus, what does that do for you and me and for also the group of people that originally received this letter? Well, it helps us avoid error if we're looking to Christ. It helps us to avoid immaturity. It also helps us to avoid heresy. That was also something that was taking place at the church at Colossae. And at the time that these verses were being written, it was very, very common for false teachers to go around in cities, in towns, and what they would do is they would peddle their secret knowledge, and they would attempt to dupe people into believing them, following them, and giving them money. They would claim to have a secret, or they would claim to have a higher form of knowledge that even a typical believer couldn't possess. You know, that's kind of what their, their MO was. But that's not how Jesus has designed his kingdom to operate. Jesus makes his truth available to all believers, every single one of us. There aren't special classes of believers that maybe have obtained a form of wisdom that isn't available to all of us. As a pastor, I don't have some sort of a secret key or some sort of ability to understand the Bible that every believer doesn't possess. And, and I'll also say this, I'm in the process of, of growing in my understanding of the Word of God, just as I hope each and every one of us is. I feel like I know the Bible better than I did 20 years ago, and guess what? 20 years ago, I was also pastoring a church. But I know the Bible better now than I did then. Why? Well, because for 20 years, I've been 
preparing messages and preparing Bible studies. Uh, Warren Wearsby once said, one of the great privileges that you have as a pastor is growth. And if you ever want to learn something, put yourself in a spot where you have to teach it. One of the greatest blessings I've ever experienced in, in submitting myself to becoming a pastor is the fact that it is the expectation of those who are in my life that I spend much of my week with my face buried into the Scriptures preparing things to teach from it. It's had a great personal benefit on my life, but it's not only accessible to me. I think in some ways it's easier for me because of that, because you give me the privilege to be able to spend a whole bunch of time looking at it. But take the opportunity yourself as well. It'll point you to Christ. It'll develop your understanding of His will. It'll point you in the direction of the knowledge and the wisdom that He wants you and I to possess. And so we look to Jesus as the source of our wisdom and our knowledge, as believers who are knit together and following Him. And there's one other thing that Paul brings out here that I really want us to notice, and I'm just going to let you know that, that my goal by the time I finished up today's message is to get canceled somewhere, all right? So we live in this day and age where if you say the wrong thing, if you say the right thing, <laughs> I should say, you'll, you'll get canceled. So my goal by the end of today's message is to get canceled somewhere, all right? So I don't know where this recording ends up. This will guarantee I could never run for political office will guarantee that somebody's going to complain about something I've said somewhere, and who knows what kind of trouble it's going to get me in. But I want to tell you something, and I want to start off by saying this. First of all, we don't need to be easily deceived. That's what this scripture brings up. We don't need to be easily deceived. So just start thinking, what kind of deception is prevalent in our culture right now? Where are people being easily deceived? Where are even believers at times being easily deceived? Where have we personally, not just other people, where have we personally been easily deceived? Look at what he says in Colossians 2, verses 4 through 5. Paul says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul wanted this young church in Colossae to be an orderly assembly. He wanted this young church to be loving toward one another. He wanted this young church to be loving toward their community. So he wanted them to be orderly, loving toward one another, toward their community, and he also wanted them to be firm in sound doctrine. That is a winning recipe right there. Orderly, loving in all direction, and firm in sound doctrine. That's what the Lord wants for our lives, and that's what the Apostle Paul obviously wanted to see in the church at Colossae. And he knew it was going to be a challenge. He knew that that would not be automatically easy. He knew that there were plenty of people in that city who had a, a reputation for deceiving people into believing all kinds of falsehood, and they happened to be very persuasive as they would try and convince people to follow these things. These false teachers, you know what they were experts in? We could all become an expert in something, but don't become an expert in what these false teachers were experts in. They were experts in partial truths. Experts in partial truths. I see this all the time. It's the same pattern that Satan used to, uh, to, to share his deception in the Garden of Eden, to take a little bit of the truth and then twist it just right. Don't become an expert in partial truths. These, these uh, false teachers in this area happen to be experts in partial truths and they were deceiving many people. But if we're rooted and anchored in Christ, if we're rooted and anchored in the truth of His Word, 
I don't believe we will be easily deceived. That's why we spend so much of our time as a church family digging into the Word of God. That's why we spend a lot of time as, as, uh, you know, during our worship services looking at what the Word of God actually says and reading it, and we don't skip the hard stuff. We don't skip the things that might not be socially applauded from time to time. And I'll, I'll tell you what, and this has happened to me even in recent years, on occasion, during the course of my ministry, I have actually been pressured from time to time to begin not so much preaching Scripture, but to delve more into the use of the pulpit that I think is a, a bad use of the pulpit. To use the pulpit to basically say, all right, what is the news talking about right now? Now I need to parrot that from the pulpit. Do you notice that I purposely don't do that? Why don't I do that? Because that's a game that I think is meant to deceive well-meaning people, but I think it's a form of deception, where you take partial truths, then you get people all divided, fired up, angry with one another, and it's like, how many people can we get to repeat this message? Oh, good. You have a spot of influence. You have a pulpit. You should say it. Say it. I've had people directly even say that to me. Why don't you say that from the pulpit? Well, first of all, because I don't believe it. And second of all, my job is to preach the Word of God. But here's the thing. I will make some social commentary, especially in regard to when, it, when, it, when Scripture brings something up and says, don't be easily deceived by these things. All right, so let me make some social commentary. This Scripture, when you look at it, well, let me even say this. When you look at the confusion that exists today, so just think about the confusion that exists today. We have all kinds of debates about all kinds of things that I think are painfully obvious, yet we debate them like they're perplexing. We look at them like they're so confusing. And the truth is, when you look at it, it's not confusing at all. We just try and make it confusing. And sadly, there's a whole generation of people right now that are being raised to believe things about all kinds of things, about gender, about human sexuality, things that have no basis in truth, and things that actually contradict what the Word of God says, and yet you have a whole group of people being taught that these are the things that they're supposed to think, and these are the way you're supposed to treat people, and the people that lived 20 years ago were just ignorant, and they didn't understand how people really operated. And I don't know why it surprises me, but it often does. And I look at that, and I think, why is it such a surprise? And why is this? Uh, R.C. Sproul used to describe it as a zeitgeist. Do you know what a zeitgeist is? It just means the spirit of the times. And in every generation, there's a spirit of the times. There's a way that collectively societies get influenced to start running towards some sort of crazy thought. And many people adopt it all at the same time, and then it becomes like the prevailing thought of a generation. And then the next generation comes along, and there'll be a new thing. And I've been alive enough for several, so I've watched it play out a few times now, but I also love reading history and so I've seen it play out in, in human history through the things I've read and studied. Every generation seems to have a falsehood that prevails. You know what was going on 100 years ago? Do you ever read up on it? I'd encourage you to read up on, on the zeitgeist or the spirit of the times from 100 years ago. Because we would look at it now and we would say, oh, that's disgusting. And yet the people of that generation, including some believers, looked at it and said, no, this makes sense. This makes sense. During the late 1800s and during the early 1900s, there was a movement toward eugenics here in the United States. Are you familiar with that? You ever hear that term? It was basically where the goal was to do genetic experimentation to one degree or another 
where you would then weed out traits that were considered undesirable from a population of people. So what happened? Belief always influences behavior. So that became the mindset in the late 1800s and then in the early 1900s, right up to the 1940s, really. And this is what happened. It was an era of forced sterilizations. It was an era where they made laws against mixed-race marriages. Does that sound offensive to anybody? I think that's kind of offensive. How about this? They did strange and secret things to people who were in asylums and institutions for those that had mental problems or developmental disabilities. It was also those beliefs that contributed directly to the prevalence of abortion in our culture. If you look at the roots of that, it was to weed out an entire generation and, and group of people. It's also what led to the extermination of millions and millions of people in the 1930s and the 1940s. What do you think was behind Hitler's thoughts and what he was doing? What do you think was behind Stalin's thoughts? We talk about Hitler all the time. Well, it's not just Hitler. It's also Stalin. It's also other world leaders. One of the deadliest centuries ever was the 1900s, and a lot of it comes back to the zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, eugenics. Weed out the undesirables. Weed them out. Treat them like they're not even human. Just weed them out. And you have people celebrating that, saying, you know what, maybe that's good for humanity. Maybe we should do that. And then over time, as you get a little distant from it, you look at it and you're like, that's insane. That's murder. Why would they treat people that way? Well, you go 100 years ago, it wasn't thought of as all that bad. It was thought of as kind of useful, kind of helpful. Maybe a good thing for the world. Maybe a good thing for society. And then I look at the, the spirit of the times right now, and I think to myself, church, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Look to Jesus, who is the source of our wisdom. Look to Jesus, who is the source of our knowledge. Don't be one of those believers that's waiting to eventually get around to reading what the Word of God actually says. Read it, even if you just take five minutes a day. Read it. Because that five minutes will probably be some of the best five minutes that you spend. And a drip at a time, a piece at a time, the wisdom of God is going to work its way into your mind. It's going to work its way into your heart. And when the wisdom of God is so prevalent in your mind and in your heart, you are less likely to be deceived. And I'll give you one powerful example before we pray. When you think of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, do you remember the season where the devil was trying to tempt him? And the devil was like, hey, if you just do this, you can have this. If you just do this, you can do this, or you could have this. How did Jesus respond? There's a very specific way Jesus responded to what Satan said. You know what Jesus did? He quoted from the book of Deuteronomy over and over and over again. And what did the devil do? He left him. Because he can't stand up to the truth. He can't stand up to the light. He can't stand up to the word of God. So if you want to spend your life with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven, I just want to tell you the very same thing that Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, it doesn't work. That's the type of thing that gets spit out. But if we want to be people who recognize that Jesus is the one that our hearts are longing for, if you finally come to that spot, you know what you'll do with your life? 
you'll want more of him because you'll be convinced that he's what your heart truly longs for. This world is filled with people who are longing for something, and they usually use the spirit of the times to try and satisfy the longing of their soul, and it won't work. Jesus Christ will, however, satisfy the longing of our soul. And you have the Apostle Paul looking at this young church, and he's someone that had come to that realization as the Lord made it clear to him, and he's thinking, what do I need to say? How do I need to communicate this so that this church understands it? And we're in the same spot we're in right now. Your pastor is in that spot as he's proclaiming the Word of God from this pulpit, but you're in this spot in your home. And you're in this spot with your friends. And you're in this spot in your workplace and in your neighborhood and with your extended family. Let the Lord speak through you, and you will have a very powerful testimony if your life matches up with what the Word of God teaches and if you actually live it out and don't buy in to the deception of the day. Give your mind, give your heart over to Christ and watch what he does with it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at your word together. Lord, we're just so grateful for the fact that as we look at it, you're revealing things to us that we would not have naturally known. Lord, we're just so grateful for the fact that we can look at a brief passage of Scripture like this, and really see things that have eternal value and eternal consequence. And Lord, I'm just so grateful for each of us here today. I pray, Lord, that, that you would allow each of us to just completely submit our lives over to you, to not find the things of this world appealing any longer, to stop looking to the things of this world to satisfy the longing of our soul, but rather to look to you, Lord, and realize that longing is only met through you. It's only satisfied through you. In you, we find what we're looking for. So, Lord, we're grateful for the fact that you make that clear. You are the source of true wisdom. You are the source of true knowledge. And we pray that persuasive arguments from whatever generation we find ourselves in would not be the type of thing that grips our mind and grips our heart. It may grip the culture, but it doesn't need to grip the church. So, Lord, we pray that we would understand your word, that we would live it out in a winsome and gracious way as we interact with this world, and that many more would come to know you as a result. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the privilege to walk with you, and we thank you for your presence with us today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.